hope you are just agreeing in your heart that is all we need is the name of Jesus. So thank you for that. This past week, I think it was this past week, so if I get it wrong, don't, uh, I'm not intentionally getting it wrong. But I was driving home from uh, church, from work, and um, <clears throat> need to stop and get myself something to eat. <clears throat> so I went through the drive-thru. I won't tell you the restaurant I went through, uh, but I was going to get myself a sandwich. I called Rachel to see if she wanted anything, and uh, she said just a, uh, a glass of tea or a cup of tea and maybe a uh, slice of toast is what she said. So <clears throat> that's what I got, and I got home, and I'd ordered a particular sandwich that um, <clears throat> supposed to be two pieces of bread, a couple... Uh, you know, chicken in there and then some sauce on it. But when I opened it up at home, now this is late, <clears throat> it was drowning in the sauce. I'm talking there's no way I could have picked this sandwich up if I wanted to. It would have required a fork. <clears throat> well, I paid for this thing and I was so upset about it. Just so irritated, just open. I cannot believe this. How did they do this? I paid this money for this. And of course, Rachel's just saying, just eat the sandwich, you'll be fine. I can't even eat it. How am I going to eat bread that's soaked? And I was just so upset. And she says, why are you getting so upset? Because I wanted this sandwich today. And she said, here, just take my piece of toast. And you can turn it into a sandwich because the top piece works fine. And um, so I did that. But I never thanked her for it. I was just so irritated. And she was like, see, I gave up my toaster. And I said, whatever. I can't believe this. And (laughs) ate the the sandwich. And um, then I felt conviction. And uh, so I wrote her a note, and I sent it to she got it this week, of saying thank you for the toast, and uh, <laughs> I'm sorry I took your toast from you. And um, I, why is it so hard to say I'm sorry? You know, why is that so hard? You know, in that moment, I could just said, I don't know why I'm getting so irritated, but rather than that, I just let it bug me the rest of the night and into the next day till I wrote the thank you note to my wife. But um, today we're going to talk about saying I'm sorry. And I don't know why it's so hard, but it's like the hardest words to get off the tongue. To be able to say to somebody else when you've done something wrong, but as we'll be talking about today, even to speak to God in that way. So we're going to be in Isaiah 59, and this is not necessarily an easy passage of scripture uh, to preach from, because it's found in a very dark period of history for the nation of Israel. But it really reminds us of the reason that we have Christmas. Christmas did not occur because humanity, everything was just going well for humanity. We, you know, the, the, uh, humanity was not on this you know, incline and morality was not increasing to the moment when all of a sudden it was just perfect and it was the right moment for Jesus to step in. No, Christmas happened for exactly the other re- reason. <laughs> it's because humanity had been on a decline. Righteousness had been on a descent. And then in, total, in the moment of total desperation... That's when Jesus steps in. That's what Christmas occurred for. It, because, it was because things had just gotten so bad. So we're going to look at this moment in history when Israel uh, had returned from captivity. They were in uh, captivity to the Babylonians. They come home to Jerusalem, this great city, and they find that the, the walls were completely destroyed. The temple was in ruins, <clears throat> There was no, uh, with regards to the people, there was no government or rule of law. There was no justice for the people. Uh, The people are impoverished. Um, It's just a terrible moment in time. And people are just so frustrated. And I imagine that these people who are just like us are probably crying out to God saying, where are you? I mean, do you not hear us? Can you not do something about this? 
And in the moment, whenever it seems like God had abandoned them, or perhaps maybe he was unable to help, in that kind of moment, that's when the prophet speaks words of hope from the Lord. And so we're going to read the first two verses of Isaiah 59. And it's utterly hopeless for humanity. But I think we need to let these words to resonate in our hearts before we understand the hope that's really found in this chapter. So Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This chapter of scripture in Isaiah speaks to the reality of our sins which separates us from holy God, leaving us absolutely hopeless, except that God responds to sin with justice and with grace to sinners by sending a redeemer. So Christmas is a season of repentance. Our our theme for the last few weeks has been, tis the season. Well, Christmas is a season of repentance. And what I hope we'll better comprehend through this sermon is that Jesus came because we were lost in sin and absolutely desperate for a Savior. If there was no need for repentance, then there was no need for Christmas. So a Christmas sermon is supposed to be warm and nostalgic. But today we are reminded that Christmas occurred because of the scourge of sin. We prepare our hearts for Christmas through repentance. The first thing we discover in the chapter is that true biblical repentance begins with divine accusation. God brings accusation against the people. And what it sounds like in this first couple verses is that the people have been crying out to God. No identifiable response from him. No help coming from heaven. And so they start saying, where is God? I mean, can he not save us? Is he unable to really be able to help us? Has it gotten that bad that even our God can't help us? Or, you know, can he not hear us? Are we not crying out in loud of enough voice? Or maybe worse, maybe God's turned a deaf ear towards us. He's abandoned us. He doesn't care. And we're in that sort of season of hopelessness. So the prophet responds to this false charge against God in the first verse saying, Behold, the arm of the Lord is not too short. His ear is not too dull to understand you. And in the following seven verses, God is speaking to the people. And when God speaks, you better listen. But let me tell you, it's not pretty. He is bringing his own charges against the people that is founded in truth. He is bringing his own charges and as uh, we as members of the human race identify with the recipients of God's divine accusation this morning. And so the prophet says, the problem is not God. He connects the short arm and the dull ear to the people's sin. He says, but your iniquity is made a separation between you and your God. So you and I are living in a reality that is the result of our sin. Not God's failure to intervene. Or not God's inability to intervene. And he gets very descriptive over the next few verses. He says in verse 3 that our whole bodies are guilty of sin. He says your hands that are supposed to serve the Lord are filled with wickedness. 
Even your fingers are culpable because of the evil that your hands do. And then he says, your lips, which are supposed to form praise, have turned to wickedness. Even your tongues have turned to iniquity. That's what he says here. Then in verses 5 and 6, he says, what happens whenever you sin is not that it creates satisfaction for you. It doesn't fill you up with good things. No, he compares what is coming as a result of the sin to snake eggs and spider's webs. It doesn't sound like a Christmas sermon when all of a sudden you hear those things. Verse 5 and 6 say, They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. So the sin that's conceived in the hearts and the minds of the people, and we identify with this, okay, brings about destruction. It doesn't cover us. It's not an act of righteousness. It's total iniquity. It's sin. And the consequence is they take this egg thinking it will fill them and it kills them. Or they crack open the egg and an adder strikes out and kills them. The punishment for sin is death. And I want you to notice verse 7, the very first phrase there. It says, their feet run to evil. So the prophet says you can't blame the devil for your sin. You can't say the devil made me do it. No, sinners run to sin. Why is that? Our hearts are drawn towards it. We're so tempted that we're pulled in. We run to sin. That's what the prophet says here. Sin has ruined us. We are helpless, but we're culpable. We are not victims. We're the bad actors here. You know, our society loves to blame other people for our uh, problems. No one really wants to own up to... um, Uh, their problems or own up to their failures or their share of responsibility in some sort of situation in the world. Um, So no one accepts blame. Um, Our litigious society has given way to a culture where we look for someone else to blame. Surely I'm not the problem here. It's got to be somebody else. I don't know if y'all read the news uh, recently. There was a, a couple ladies that were in Myrtle Beach and they were staying at the hotel next to Broadway at the beach and uh, the, it's off-season, so the water slide is closed. So they walk by, and they saw, huh, we can climb there. It's late. So they climb over the gate, up the steps. Well, they, they slide down this dry water slide, and it creates burn. And then they slam into, like, a gate that was there to keep people out, and it, they end up breaking bones. And so rather than saying, I can't believe we did this, they filed a suit to say, why didn't you do more to keep us out? Because that's what we do in our sin. We blame other people. Paul David Tripp said... I like to think that my biggest, deepest problems in life are outside of me, not inside of me. I identify with that. I like to think that my problems, deepest problems are outside of me, not inside of me. Isn't that how all of us are? My problems are not because of me. Well, we live in a country that prides itself in the freedom to protest. It seems like those are on the increase. Every news story that covers a vote or a speech seems to also have a group of protesters, probably on both sides, that are out there hollering, screaming, raising signs, whatever they might be doing. But if you look closely, you never see anybody out there protesting that's shouting or holding a sign that says, I'm the problem, blame me. They don't do that. You know, that would be absurd, wouldn't it? But I think they would be closer to truth. 
Because I think that we, own, we must own up to the responsibility of what's happening in our world. At the root of all these things that we think are problems, it's not situations. It's not, um, you know, just a bad side of town. It's not just a bad relationship we have. No, at the root of all of it is people. Bad marriages are really just marriages with people who are doing bad things. Dangerous neighborhoods are really just neighborhoods with people who are doing evil and violent things. The marriage isn't the problem. The neighborhood isn't the problem. It's the people in them. So do you want to apply Isaiah 59 to your life? The first thing I would say is recognize that people are the problem. People are the problem. God created a pristine world. He gave us wisely created institutions. And what do we do? We go and ruin them. We make a mess of them. Now, our normal response to problems is to run from them, you know, to run to a better situation or a different location or maybe escape to somebody else, another relationship. The problem, though, is every time you run, you're running to other people who are in locations or situations or relationships. So you will always find more problems. So if you're hoping in better situations or locations or relationships, you're hoping in the wrong thing. Inside of every man, woman, and child lurks something very dark and very dangerous, and it's sin. Sin ruins everything. God's arm is not too short. His ear is not too dull. No, it's that our sin is just so toxic. And so it's time to put the blame game to rest. And our sin is not simply words and thoughts and deeds that hurt other people. Our sins hurt God. When we sin, we sin against God. And then in verse 9, Isaiah transitions to the first person plural and declares this personal confession. So verse 9, therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light. But behold, darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Repentance is personal confession as we declare, I am the problem. Blame me. Not just that humanity is the problem or that sin in the world is the problem. No, it's me. Sin is my own personal problem. That's what happens in verses 9 through 15. But it begins with a declaration of hopelessness. In verse 10 it says, We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. Sin leaves us in darkness. You know, we remember that at Christmas. We remember this, uh, the darkness of the world. And so what we do is in the night sky, we like to light it up with these beautiful holiday decorations. Um, I see, I have a little bit of Clark Griswold in my heart, you know. I would love to have a house that stops the traffic. The problem is, I live on a dangerous curve, you know. So that would, be a re- that would make for a dangerous neighborhood if I were to do that. So my family, we like to go out looking at all the different Christmas light displays. We live on the other side of the river, so we go to the Crepe Myrtle Acres, and they have every house in there has lit up. And then down to Cromer Road to Autumn Oaks and that house that has the incredible, uh, you know, uh, light display that's uh, synced to music. And they have Santa in the upper window waving. I love that. We go several times. We've already been. We'll go again. That's what we like to do. 
Christmas reminds us that the world is lost in darkness. <clears throat> in the Messianic chapter of Isaiah 9 and verse 2, it says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And that great light is Jesus. That's what he's pointing to. <clears throat> the darkness is not because God is silent. It's not because the prophets have failed or that kings have acted unrighteous, uh, in an unrighteous way. The darkness is a result of man's sins. So in verse 12, <clears throat> Isaiah drives it home. He says, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. He's saying we have sinned. And he gives three words. He talks about transgressions. To, uh, transgression is high-handed rebellion. It's when God establishes a law and we step over it. We transgress the law. We shake our fists in his face. <clears throat> and then he refers to sin. Sin is, uh, we think of in archery terms. You know, it's, it's to miss the mark. It's when you draw back the bow, you release the arrow, and it does not miss the bullseye. That's what sin is, to fall short now, what we like to do is say, but see how close I can get? But it's still sin, right? Because it's fallen short of God's intention for us. And the scripture says the sin testifies against us. And then he uses the word iniquity. Iniquity is basically moral uncleanness. It's the idea of a dirty heart or a dirty soul. And the prophet here is saying that's what we are filled with. Sin, transgression, iniquity. And verse 12 becomes the turning point because now we own up to our failures. Now remember, Isaiah is speaking in the first person plural here. He says us. And this is the point where, all, uh, where we all pick up the picket signs and say, I'm the problem, God. It's my fault. I have sinned. In verse 1, we read a false charge against God. Verses 2 through 7, God brings charge against man. Verses 8 through 15, we read how a contrite person responds to God's allegation and admits failure. Part of confession is realizing that we are hopeless to cleanse ourselves on our own. We cannot make ourselves clean enough. We cannot cover up our sins enough. He says when we do that, it's like spider's web. That's what he says. So we have a problem we can't solve on our own. And it's in this serious situation of hopelessness that we find a doorway to real hope. When you find yourself in total hopelessness, that's when the door to hope begins to open up. You can imagine whenever Christ first came and it had been silent. And then they hear rumors that Zechariah had been in the inner court and he had been visited by an angel. And now Elizabeth's with child. Or a woman who claimed to be a virgin that's given birth to a child. There were shepherds over in Bethlehem that said they saw angels in the sky. <clears throat> and then some heard from these men coming from the east bearing gifts for a king of kings who had been born. So all of a sudden in hopelessness, that's when the door to hope is kicked open. Christmas marks that time when God was opening the door. The problem is that we are wired as humans corrupted by sin to blame everyone else for our failures but ourselves. But God has said that we are the problem. Well, confession is simply means we agree with God. We say to God, you call it sin, I'll call it sin too. Yes, God, it is sin, I have sinned. I will not try to make excuse for what I've done wrong. I will not say that I'm a victim of my circumstances. I will not say that if I was born into a different family, 
I will not say that, I'll not try to justify what I've done. Or I will not say it really isn't that bad compared to what other folks do. No, I will call it sin as you have called it. I am the problem. In confession, we stake our hope on God for forgiveness and on nothing else. So what are you hoping in? Some of you are hoping in your own righteousness. You're thinking, well, I'm not that bad. I don't have anything to worry about. And you compare yourselves to others and you say, I'm pretty good compared to them. Some of you are hoping in your pedigree, you know, the family you came from. You say, you know, I've been in church ever since I came home from the hospital. That's the kind of family I come from, you know. I don't have anything to worry about. God owes me. I don't have to worry about that. Some of you are hoping in your ability to resist temptation. You say, I'm just not tempted by the things other people are. The scripture says we are groping like blind men along the wall. We are utterly hopeless to find God or to be made right before him on our own. Israel was hopeless. The world was hopeless on its own. In the same way, we are hopeless to obtain a fulfilling life apart from God. You know, there are some great people in this world, but you will not meet the right person who will be able to give you a fulfilled life. It's not going to happen. No matter what, they are a person, they will let you down. They will hurt you. Another person cannot provide for you what only God is able to provide for you. You'll not find a job that will be so satisfying that it will make worth life living. Uh, life worth living, excuse me. In the end, it's still work. It doesn't matter what you get for Christmas this year. The happiness you seek is not going to be found in possessions. You are hopeless to find true wholeness in this world. But hopelessness is what opens the door to hope, right? So the passage goes from God's divine accusation to personal confession. And now we're going to see that God responds by giving justice and salvation. Let me read to you the last part of verse 15 through verse 16. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. God is saying as he looks in Jerusalem, there is no justice to be found. He's declaring there is no place to run to. There is no person good enough. He sees that wickedness has increased. It's become great. So what is he to do? What's to be done? God says his own arm brought salvation. Now, when we read the arm of the Lord in the Old Testament, very often that is an allusion to the Lord Jesus Christ, the arm of the Lord. So God doesn't respond to our need by sending us a better situation or a different location or a new relationship that we can step into. He sends us a Savior. Now, you remember the whole chapter began with this false accusation against God. You know, is his arm too short? But how's God going to save us? By his arm. In his arm, that we're hope, that's what we are hoping in. God reacts to our hopelessness by giving us hope. That's the story of Christmas. In this season of repentance, we discover that on the other side of our repentance is Jesus. And it is in Jesus that we hope. Um, he's the one that invades the earth for us. And the hope brings two things. It brings justice and salvation, which is only ours by grace. So verse 17 through 19. 
It says, he puts on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle according to their deeds so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. God is coming to deal with evil. He is coming to deal with sin. Sin is not going to be excused. It's not going to be overlooked. It is a serious thing and it must be dealt with. But here's one of our problems. At least I've noticed it in myself. I don't always see my sin as sinful. I don't always see the things that I do that are sinful. I don't see it as sinful. You know, if you're walking down the street and you're lusting, very rarely do you see that as a sin. You just think, I'm just looking. There's no harm in looking. You know, if you're a teenager and you are going behind your parents to do something you know they've told you not to do, you don't think of that as a sin of rebellion. You're thinking, I'm just practicing independence here. That's all I'm doing. You know, if all of a sudden you're telling somebody about what so-and-so did or what so-and-so said, you don't think of that as gossiping because you hate a gossip. You're just informing them. Maybe they can pray for them. (laughs) But God is coming to bring justice. Amos says it will roll down like mighty waters. In other words, you're not going to be able to stop it. It's like the Lake Murray Dam breaking. Where do you run to? God's justice is coming. And it's not just coming against the big crimes of humanity. It's not just coming against those who have persecuted Christians in real ways. But every transgression, every sin, every act of wickedness and iniquity is going to be dealt with by God. That's what a just God does. It may not sound comforting, but what else is a just God to do? Paul David Tripp says, He will not rest until sin is forever defeated. He will not relent and he will not quit until every molecule of sin is delivered out of every cell, of every heart, of every one of his children. He will not rest until sin is forever defeated. Our just God doesn't send Jesus into the world on uh, on just a mission of justice. He also comes with salvation by grace. Verse 20, it says, a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. So a redeemer is one who buys back. In the book of Ruth, Boaz is described as the kinsman redeemer. He buys back what has been lost by Ruth. And all of a sudden she experiences joy beyond what she knew. Well, Jesus comes as our redeemer. Because of sin, you and I are slaves to sin. We owe a debt. But God comes to buy us back through Jesus. But he pays the penalty and that's what the cross is about. The redemption is paid for there in the form of a life and in the form of blood. So these verses point directly to the cross. Jesus didn't just come as a baby to live gently in his mother's arms. No, he was coming on a rescue mission as a warrior to deal handily with sin. Christmas is a season of repentance. And at the end of repentance is justice for sin and salvation for sinners. I have this fear that the nostalgia of a nativity scene... And the season of joy that we're in will cause us to miss that Jesus became, that Jesus came because our sin demanded a Savior. Living in darkness, humanity needed hope. Hope that God would deal justly with sin and graciously with you and me. 
Christmas is a season of repentance. That's what it is. The whole coming of Christ is a direct response to God's divine accusation against mankind. And in personal confession, we find forgiveness in Jesus. Justice for sin and salvation by grace. So this Christmas, let's remember sin is serious. It's something for us to think seriously about. It's what led us to the point of utter hopelessness. And in hopelessness, the door to hope begins to open. That door was forced open as Jesus entered the world. So if you're here today as a believer in Jesus, and you miss, uh, here today as a believer in Jesus, don't miss that God is calling you to repentance. So what is repentance? It is actually turning and going the other way. Confession, you agree with God. Repentance says, I will not live this way anymore. I will choose to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, walk a different way. Live in a different way. So today, turn from your sins. What is your hope in? If it's in anything other than Jesus or in addition to Jesus, your hope is in the wrong thing. So confess. Say, God, I'm sorry, I'm hoping in something other than you. If you're not a believer today, let me assure you that Jesus entered our world to rescue you and provide you the hope of eternal life. And you can respond to that good news today. It's the season of repentance. John came to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this Christmas, begin with repentance and making room for the King in your heart. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider your word. And we thank you for the truth that's here for us, that we need to hear. It's not always easy to hear that we've sinned. But God, we acknowledge we have. And we thank you that you've rescued us through Jesus. Now, God, help us to live for you. We pray for those that are here that need that relationship with you today that they might respond. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If God's speaking to your heart, we'd love for you to make a decision. I'll be down front. Some of you may need to come join the church, make a commitment, respond to the gospel, make a decision towards baptism. You do that. Don't miss that today. So you stand. Our choir's going to sing. You respond.